Are you ready to reach the mountaintop of your life? Do you want to turn your dreams into your reality? If that sounds like you, then welcome to the Mountaintop Motivation Podcast. What is going on, everybody? I'm so excited for another episode of the Mountaintop Motivation Podcast. Specifically this episode, we have an incredible guest today, an incredible interview with the one and only Les Brown. Les Brown has been known as the godfather of motivation. He is one of the uh, most popular and most successful motivational speakers of all time. Back when I was just dreaming of being a motivational speaker as my career, uh, I would listen to Les Brown, uh, Les Brown audios. I'd, I'd listen to anywhere that I could find Les Brown, I'd get his audio books, his audio programs. I would listen to him, and I would dream about being on a stage, being just like Les Brown. Uh, this was 12 years ago when I was just dreaming about it. I hadn't taken any action yet, and it was such an honor to be able to sit down and have an interview with Les Brown and get to talk to him and get to share that experience. And I can tell you, sometimes they say don't meet your heroes. Well, Les Brown has not been that way at all. Meeting Les Brown uh, was an incredible experience. There was so much time where we had some, some beautiful, amazing time when we weren't recording before and after. And uh, since then, we've shared phone calls and uh, shared a couple other things as well. And it has been such an incredible experience getting to meet this man. He is the absolute real deal. And I'm thrilled for you to be able to listen to this episode. So this interview was actually from May of 2020. I know that's a long time ago, but May of 2020 is when we did this interview. It was live in the Speakers, Authors, and Coaches Network. So if you are a speaker, author, coach, or an aspiring speaker, author, or coach, then go and join our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash speaker, author, coach. You can find it there or just search Speakers, Authors, and Coaches Network on Facebook and you will find it. We bring experts in uh, like Les Brown, like Jack Canfield, other types of experts as well. We bring those people in so that you can learn from people who have been doing this for decades. And this interview was from that time. And I'm excited to share this with you now so that you can listen to this. You can learn Les Brown's wisdom. You can learn all that he's learned, not all, but some of what he's learned. He can't include all that he's learned in, in just one interview. But uh, you're going to hear so much of the wisdom that he's learned. You're going to hear his philosophies around telling stories. He's an incredible storyteller. You're going to hear some incredible experiences that I've never heard him share before. So I'm excited for you to listen to this episode, uh, this interview from Les Brown. Thank you so much for listening. Let's go straight into that episode. This is Jake Ballantyne with Mountaintop Motivation, and I will see you at the top. All right, everyone. How's it going in the speakers, authors, and coaches network? I am here with the one and only Les Brown. How are you doing today, Les? I'm better than good, better than most, and sometimes even better than that. But I'm really especially blessed because I met you today. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Les, uh, starting out today, I'm going to start out a little bit differently because we, we just had our conversation before. We found <laughs> yes, we have. Mutual yeah, love. Yes. <laughs> a mutual love for all things Disney. So yeah. I love what does Mickey Mouse mean to you? Mickey Mouse is a symbol of happiness. As a kid, I love when they, when M-I-C, see you real soon, K-E-Y-Y, -Y, because we like you. 
M-O-U-S-E, Vicky Mouse. So as a kid, that brought a lot of joy in my life. I had a lot of challenges coming up. Born in an abandoned building on a floor in a poor section of Miami, Florida called Liberty City. Being a foster child, then ultimately being adopted, one of seven, have a twin brother. And the place where we were raised, it was very challenging. I'm, you know, February 17th, I just turned 75. So I, I came up in a very harsh, very difficult time. And that was a, a place where I could escape mm. and have joy and happiness and laughter. And it brings me joy to this day. I'm a big kid. Uh, people say when they hear me speak, I have more people comment on my laughter than they do on my content. <laughs> oh, I love to hear you laugh. <laughs> and, I, and I, I was, nobody's ever said in my 51 years of speaking, oh, I love the quotes that you give. You know, <laughs> your laughter, oh my God, please do laugh today, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's true. Because one of the comments, you know, I asked people, if you have questions, you know, send in the questions. And I had quite a few comments that said, I don't really care what you ask them, just get them to laugh. Right. right. Okay. Yeah. See, yes. Right. So, so I, I have a lot of joy and I'm blessed. I'm a, I am a, a 27 year prostate cancer conqueror because of God's grace and mercy. And when I think about the fact that I believe that we were created by the creator to create. And, and to me, my, my goal is somebody asked me, what do you want said about you when you die? And I said, I want them to say, I aspired to inspire until I expired. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm still doing it. You know, I'm still going strong and I love it. It's my passion. It's my life. Wonderful. And I, I love that hearing that. Cause I, I'm, you know, very much the same way. I'm a big kid and I love being a big kid. I can be serious when it's time to be serious. Yes. But you know, I think the world's too serious sometimes. I think we got to have fun. Without any question. And you have to find it because it's, it's, there's sadness, there's tragedy everywhere. But in the midst of it, you, you have to find some joy, some insight, I always ask the question, what am I learning from this experience? And how do I handle this? And what's next for me? When you, when you have someone look at you and say, you have cancer, those are three words that no one ever wants to hear. And three most feared words in seven different languages. Mm -hmm. So what, now what? What do I do now? And I remember Dr. Alfred Gosden, who was a very unusual kind of doctor, an oncologist. And he said, you have cancer. And I said, can you give me a second opinion? He said, yes. And you're ugly too. <laughs> I said, no, you didn't. I did, did you just call me ugly? He said, yeah. <laughs> and we both started laughing. And then he said, but you got this. We determine the diagnosis. God determines the prognosis. You and God will determine how long you be here. You got this. And when we laugh, 
the mind shuts down and the heart opens up. And so when he, he said, you got this, you and God determines how long you're going to be here. That went straight to my heart at the cellular level. And when I left there, I left there not in, in, in engulfed in fear, but engulfed in knowing, I got this. This does not have me. This is a growth experience. And I'm going to dance with this, and we're going to have a great experience with this. And so there are things that at the time you go through them, you feel they happen to you, but there are periods in your life as you live forward, you look back and you realize they happen for you. And so I, I have grown mentally and emotionally and spiritually. I'm a better person. There are things that used to get on my last nerve that no longer bother me. You know, <laughs> and it, it, it causes you to put things in perspective. And so I'm thankful for just being here every day. The, the goal that I have when, when I wake up in the morning I say this scripture, all things work together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. And I write down seven things that I'm grateful for, my gratitude list each day. Wow, that's amazing. And what you shared right there, I think it's so important right now, because you talked about things happening for you and not to you. And I know that a lot of people are going through more stress than they've gone through in maybe a lifetime right now. What's your advice for someone who feels like you know, they, they just don't know what to do? They feel like they're at the end of their rope because of everything that's going on in the world right now. The most important thing that people can do is try and, and get your program on, on the internet and focus on what you have on the wall. Focus on the good. Because the reason Zig Ziglar said something about fear, and this is where a lot of people are operating and living from a place of fear. He said, fear. He said, the majority of people forget everything and run. But there's a small number of people who face everything and rise. And the people who face everything and rise, they spend time looking for the good to focus on, to be fueled, that if you focus on the good, you will allow your fears and doubts to starve to death. Focus on the good, find it because it's there. And when we look at where things are right now, we have to really make a conscious, deliberate, determined effort and, and building mental resiliency because we're taking a lot of hits. We're in places where we've never been before. And, and so as a result of that, it's, 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 it takes everything in you to keep your mind focused on the good, on what it is that you're creating, what it is that you want to produce in your life. He said, I'll keep the imperfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. And it, it's not easy. It's easy to say focus on the good. But it's not easy. It, it takes a conscious, deliberate, determined effort. A, a negative person can see opportunities and they will only focus on the obstacles. But a person who's an optimist will see obstacles and they will focus on the opportunities. And so that becomes habitual. We, we, 
we can't control the thoughts that come in our minds, but we can control the thoughts that we choose to dwell on. Focusing on the good will begin to decrease the stress and the anxieties. Focusing on the good puts the ball in your court. It gives you a, a power of responsibility. George Bernard Shaw said, the people that make it in this world, they look around for the circumstances that they want. And if they can't find them, they create them. And they I feel they create it by focusing on the good, by not giving up, by not becoming frustrated and, and feeling disempowered. Wow, that is absolutely incredible. I love everything that you shared there. And that that's totally what I believe and I, I want to share a story with you. And as soon as this interview came, uh, came as an opportunity, I wanted to publicly thank you. And I wanted to publicly thank you for uh, the effect that you had on me and also for the effect that you've had on so many people. But I want to share a story with you. When I was first starting out, when I first decided that I wanted to make a career as a motivational speaker, now I can say that I've done that for nearly a decade now, and I'm very happy about that. But at the very beginning, said, I want to do this. And of course, I was you know, learning different things and things like that, but I had to stay determined in order to do it. And I, I purchased an audio program, one of your audio programs, and I would listen to that every single day. And every time I'd get a no from someone, I would listen to that. I'd listen to it in the morning. I'd listen to it while I was sending emails. I'd listen to it constantly over and over and over again to give me the drive to keep going. And even though everyone was saying no and no and no and no and no, I had less in my ears saying yes. And to me, I made all the difference in the world. And I just wanted to thank you publicly for myself and the millions of people that you've been able to have an impact on over the years. Thank you so very much. That's, that's very kind of you to share that. To God be the glory. You know, something that I feel all of us have moments in our lives when we need to have another voice to override the voice that we have picked up from life yes. or because of the experiences that we have gone through, that, that, that something that will interrupt our thinking, that will give us fuel. I had a friend named Susan, Sue, Suzanne DePass. She used to be the president of Motown Records. And, and she said, make no your vitamin. And every time I ran into a rejection, I always thought about that. That word always came back to me. Make know your vitamin. Let it strengthen you. That means that you are closer to a yes every time you encounter it because it's out there somewhere. Get excited when they say no. And I've had people who they told me, you know, when I first started out, I said, oh, thank you so much. Hang up. They called back and said, did you hear what I said? <laughs> I said, no. I said, no. Oh, yeah, I did. I heard what you said. Yeah, thank you again. And hug up and say, well, look, here. okay, let's go through this again. Tell me, let's go through the presentation. <laughs> because I didn't have no attitude. They wanted me to go through the presentation again because now they felt that they were missing out on something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, one of the things that you helped me do, and I think you helped many people this, is a very famous line of, of yours. Is you that you got to be yeah, that's right. You got to be yeah. hungry. And yes. I want to know, what does that mean to you? What does it mean to be hungry? It means that you have to go all out. When the odds are stacked against you, when a system and a culture is designed to hold you down, 
you don't have time to sit around and be depressed and, and talk about it. You, you spend all your time and energy looking for ways in which you can overcome that. And, and so people that are hungry know that you will fail your way to success. Walt Disney filed bankruptcy seven times and had two nervous breakdowns, and he just kept going. That, that as you look at your goals and dreams, you, you have a great deal to overcome. There will always be interruptions. And there's a saying in church, they say, new levels, new devils. <laughs> so so, so that, that in, but the people who are hungry, they don't care. They, they believe like Willie Jolly, who said a setback is a setup for a comeback. We have comeback power. I have a saying in one of my recordings that if, if life knocks you down, try and land on your back because if you can look up, you can get up. <laughs> <laughs> and people that are hungry, they get back up again. So that's, that's what it means to me, that you, you are unstoppable, you are relentless, and you know it's not over until you win. Yes, that is it. It's not over until you win. And uh, that, oh, it's so amazing. Thank you so much. So did you hear the speech in the Georgia Dome that I gave? I've listened to it many times, but please tell us about it because maybe oh, it hasn't. That's what I was calling John Leslie, my son, but he, he went downstairs. I was playing, playing with him Connect Four and beating me 11 games because I told him I was number one on Mars and Jupiter with Connect Four and, and the universe. And so I already quit. I just got tired of beating him. He said, oh, you can't quit? now." I said, why? He said, it's not over until I win. <laughs> I said, okay, I'm not going to give you any breaks. And so we played a few more games, and he finally won one. He got up. He said, okay, Dad, I'm ready to go to sleep now. And walked away. <laughs> I said, well. <laughs> well, hey, he's using your own words against you. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so we have to know that there's a win for us in, in so many areas of our lives. And the key is to be persistent. As Og Mandino would say, I will persist until I succeed. And, and to persevere that you're going to go through some tough times. Life is hard. However, if you do what is easy, like quit, become frustrated. If you do what is easy, your life will be hard. But if you do what is hard, your life will be easy. Mm, beautiful. Where did you come up with that saying? I mean, it's so iconic and so catchy, this idea of being hungry. What's the origin of that? I was working with, with my mother and she, went, she was doing Dave's work on Miami Beach for these wealthy families. And I was required to rake the yard and, and, and to come in the house and clean some spots off the floor. And so mama was cleaning the other room. She, she cooked for these families and we ate the food left over from the families that she cooked for. And she kept their children. We wore the hand-me-down clothes of the children that she kept. And I was required to, to remove some spots off the floor. And so Ms. Harris asked my mother, she said, baby, come in and go, go in that room and, and, and get that hat that I love so very much. It was a special hat that she wanted to wear that day. And my mother went in the room and, and all of a sudden, I heard this clapping of her hands. And I said, Mama, she said, what is it, Leslie? I said, why are you clapping your hands? She said, don't you worry. She says, 
you do what you're supposed to do. And then she came out of the room and she said, Miss Harris, it's not in there. So she said, well, check this other room over there. And she went in the other room and my mother once again, she started clapping her hands. And I said, mama, and this time she's aggravated. What is it, Leslie? I said, why are you clapping your hands? She said, didn't I tell you to do what you're supposed to do? I said, yes, ma'am. And at that moment, Miss Harris came over. She said, I can tell you why she's clapping her hands. And I said, why? And she said, when I have colored people or any of the help looking for something for me and I can't see them, I make them clap their hands to make sure that they're not stealing. And I dropped the, the cloth that I was wiping the floor with. I stood up and at this time, you were not allowed to look white people in the eyes. And I looked her in the eyes. I didn't look down. And I said, my mother is not a thief. I said, she loves you and she loves your children. When she talked to the neighbors about you and your children, she say, my children, the Harris family. And my mother would never steal from anybody. And she looked at me and she was shocked because this was unprecedented. And she walked out of the kitchen and I got back down on my knees and I started scrubbing the floor of, in those spots. And I said to myself, nobody will ever make my mother clap her hands again because they think that she's stealing. When I become a man, I will take care of her. She will never go through something like this ever again. And that gave a birth of hunger in me to want to make something of my life, to want to provide for her, to want to be able to take care of her. I, I, I wanted to buy her a home. I'm here because of two women. One gave me life, the other one gave me love. God took me out of my biological mother's womb and placed me in the heart of my adopted mother. And, and so when I turned 18, I said, Mama, you'll never pay another bill. And I took care of her until she passed at 89. And that, I feel like Abraham Lincoln who said, all that I am and all that I ever hope to be, I owe to my mother. And my hunger to make her proud, my hunger to take care of her, the hunger to generate enough income to buy her a home, that has stayed with me. That had become a guiding principle in my life. They, there was a reporter who asked her during the time I had a talk show, King World had paid me to do. And they asked her, how did you know you can raise seven children by yourself, never having any kids, third grade education? And she said, I just believe that the Lord will make a way somehow. And so that has been a guiding principle in my life. The neighbors called me Mamie's boy. They said, I just like her, I, whatever I speak, I end my, my presentation by saying, this has been Mrs. Mamie Brown's baby boy. <laughs> and, and so I just believe that the Lord will make a way somehow, that we do what we can do, and God will do what we can't do. And so that has governed my life. And, this, and the scripture says, those who hunger, and thirst after righteousness, right thinking, right vision, right words, right action, right relationships shall be filled. 
And so when you're in alignment with your purpose, and I believe that we were not born to work for a living, but to live our making and living our making will make our living, that that hunger will create a presence that will open doors you did not see and allow you to do things that you don't even know you can do right now. Wow. What an amazing story. I just want you to let you know in the group, you know, watching this live, we got 75 people on here and uh, I, there's hundreds of comments of people talking about what an incredible story that is. You know, people thanking you for that incredible story. Um, I, I believe that one of the reasons why you have been so successful, I mean, you are one of the top motivational speakers of all time. And I believe so much of that has to do with your ability to tell stories. You are an incredible storyteller. How does one become a better storyteller? We have lots of speakers watching this. How can they become better storytellers? I am so glad you asked that question. <laughs> because it became the key to my success. When I came into the industry, the industry has been governed by the Dale Carnegie course. Tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. Giving people information, basically from the book, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. My mentor, Mike Williams, who has been my strategist and my coach, he said, Brownie, he said, if information can change people, everybody would be skinny, rich, and happy. He said, what you want to do is create a significant emotional event. You want to share your story. And, and I said, why? He said, a story has a human face. You want to use your story. People are basically emotional. To expand a person's vision beyond their mental conditioning and their circumstances, to touch their heart and to ignite their spirit so they become, as Mother Teresa would say, a pencil in the hand of God and start writing a new chapter in their lives. And so it's, it's very important for you to align yourself with someone that you have admired what they do and how they speak and, 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 and the role that you want speaking to play in your life. And he was a very talented, still is, speaker. And I've said, can you teach me how to do this? And I hired him as my, my strategist. And so when you're telling a story, there's several elements that's very important. Number one, when you're giving a presentation, people are asking three things. Who are you? What do you have? And why should I care? That's number one. Because people will be influenced and trust people. They get to know, like, and, and be able to create a connection with. The second thing is that when you tell the story, you never make a point without a story. You never tell a story without a point. And so you want it to, to use your story strategically to empower them so that as a result of them hearing you, they leave there feeling better about themselves, but talking about you. And the third thing is that's very important. You use stories to create an experience. Oliver Wendell Holmes said that once a man or woman's mind has been expanded with an idea, concept, or experience, it can never be satisfied to going back to where it was. And there are five other things, but let me share, share this with you. 
the average speaker, according to the National Speakers Association, get around 25 calls a month. I mean, a year. I get over 3,000. So that proves, not, and I don't say that to impress them, but to say, this works. I know that this works. I've spoken in over um, the 51 countries. And so using your story, and it does not have to be a down and out story. It could be a story that you witness. Uh, Marianne Williamson, who wrote a book called The Return to Love, she talked about a book that she read called A Course in Miracles. And she built a whole career talking about a book she loved that transformed her life. The key is that each time you tell the story, you tell it like you're telling it for the first time. Because there are people in the audience, even though there's some who heard the story, but there are some who have not heard that story and they're hearing it for the first time. And even those who've heard it before, they want you to tell it like you told it when you first told it. Like when I buy music, I don't want you to start ad-libbing. I want to hear what I purchase. Do it like you did it for the first time. My former wife is Gladys Knight and she did a song called Midnight Train to Georgia. And she never improvised. She will always do it the same. And, and, and I appreciated that. And so the, the, the power of, of how a story can get in a person's heart and stay there, and they will remember that during the tough times, during the dark times, that story will bring them out. A lady told me the other day, she said, I was feeling sad because I was diagnosed with fourth stage cancer and I've been depressed. I heard an interview with you. And when you told me, when you said that the oncologist told you when you asked for a second opinion, you, you were ugly. <laughs> she said, I started laughing. He said, you are crazy. <laughs> How can you be so joyful? <laughs> So she said she had been in bed for like three weeks. She said she got up and got dressed and didn't have anywhere to go around the house. I told her, because in that interview, I talked about I was eating a lot of rabbit food. I feel food. I feel like a silly rabbit. <laughs> and so she said, I started finding things to enjoy about life, to laugh about, and I have exceeded everyone's expectations around me and I'm no longer in hospice. Mm. To God be the glory. Yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah, you're you're it's just incredible. Your ability to to tell stories. I've seen you live a, a, several times and every time, you know, when you see other speakers, what is a lot of the audience doing? A lot of the audience is looking down at their phone and doing things like that. But when, when you speak, every single eye is up front. And, and it doesn't matter how many people are in the room, how far back they are, every single eye is, is on you. And it's just this amazing ability to tell stories. Yes, but you have to be immersed in the story. You can't, there's a difference between telling the story, presenting the story, and living the story. So when I tell the story about Mr. Leroy Washington, that I was in his class and he asked me to do something, and I said, sir, I can't do that. Why not? I'm not one of your students. Look at me. Yes, sir. Do what I'm asking you to do anyhow. I can't, sir. And the other students started laughing. He's Leslie. He's got a twin brother, Wesley. Wesley's smart. He's DT. What's DT? 
He's the dumb twin. I am, sir. Don't you ever say that again. Someone's opinion of you does not have to become your reality. You hear me? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. On that day, he looked at me with the eyes of Gerda who said, look at a man the way that he is. He only becomes worse. But look at him as if he were what he could be. Then he becomes what he should be. That was, that was a transformative experience. So I don't just tell the story. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're doing a monologue. I mean, I mean it, it's, it's like. Yeah. I got somebody I'm working with today. I'm going to be working her. I hope she doesn't see this program because I've, I, she's got this story. I said, no, you got to get the butter from the duck. I got to go up there and pull it out. Oh, because that story has so much, so much power in it. Yes. And so when you are immersed in it, when you go back to that original moment, we are emotional people. We have emotional memory. And so you don't just present it, but you experience that moment and the audience will experience that moment with you. And it will take them to another place and allow them to back up and to look at their lives from another perspective and say, hmm, if he can do this, I can do this. That's the key for us to review and to rethink our lives where we are right now. We have to rethink and start asking ourselves a question. First of all, this is a cocoon. My, my daughter, Dr. Ona Brown, she said gaps are from God. And so we got a gap now. We have, we have time that we can think. We have time that we can upgrade our skills, upgrade our relationships. We have time to look at our lives and, and ask ourselves, how am I going to emerge from this? What will be different about me? Um, what, what radical change in my behavior that I need to make that will allow me to make this time that, that we're in a lockdown become an asset to me rather than a liability? My son, John Leslie, who's a speaker, he said, maximize your downtime. And I said, why, why do they call it downtime? He said, because that's when most people engage in behavior that keeps them from going up. He said, you want to spend time in your downtime working on and developing and perfecting the skills that will allow you to soar and have major breakthroughs in your life. Mm, that's incredible. The way that you told that story was of a world-class actor. That, that really <laughs> was a world-class actor. That was amazing. How'd you get started? When you first started as a speaker, how, how did you get started? So many people in our community are brand new speakers who want to get started. And so I'd like to go back to the very beginning. How did you get started? When did you decide to do this? How did this go? Mr. Washington, was he was a speech and drama instructor. And I was in special education. When I was in the fifth grade, I was identified as EMR, lab, labeled educable mentally retarded, and put back from the fifth grade to the fourth grade. And I fell again when I was in the eighth grade. And after we had our first encounter, and he told me that someone's opinion of me did not have to become my reality, I, I failed that year and had to go to summer school for the fifth straight year. And I was walking down the hall, and I heard this voice coming through the auditorium doors, and I recognized that voice. And I went in, and, and I, 
there are many people listening right now have had an experience where they heard someone speaking and they felt that speech is for me. He's talking to me. And, and he said, you have greatness in you. He said, Booker T. Washington, not the largest, but the best. And when you leave here, you have a chance to make your family proud, your school proud, your community proud. You have greatness in you. And I'll never forget, I followed him down the auditorium steps and, and we were in a parking lot. I said, Mr. Washington, do you remember me, sir? He says, no. I said, I'm Leslie. I got a twin brother, Wesley. You, you said to me, somebody's opinion of me does not have to become my reality. He said, yes, yes. I said, you said we have greatness in us. You, you were in there with the, with the seniors, you were junior. Yes, but I felt you were talking to me. And he said, yes, you do have greatness in you. And I said, how do you explain the fact that I have to go to summer school? My twin brother never had to go to summer school. He said, your grades don't determine who you are. He said, you just have to work harder. And he turned to walk away again. And I said, Mr. Washington? He said, yes. What do you want now? You said, I, we can make our school proud, our community. I said, I just want to make my mother proud. Can I make her proud? He said, yes. And he turned to walk away again. I said, Mr. Washington, he said, what do you want now? I said, you said if one person heard you that you're being brought here from, from Stewart, Florida, that you're being brought to Miami would not have been in vain. He said, yes. I said, sir. I'm the one, I heard you. you, you spoke to my heart. I'm the one, sir. One day you're gonna hear my voice. One day you're gonna hear my name again. I'm the one. And he turned and said, it's possible young man and started walking away. I said, don't you forget me. My mother works in the cafeteria, Miss Mamie Brown. I'm her baby boy. I'm the one and I decided when I saw him, he became like my spiritual father. I wanted to speak like him. He was so inspirational and he was so gripping. And I studied him and he taught in a, what's called a wooden portable. And I stood on a box outside the window and I would look in the room because I was not allowed to be mainstream at that time being in special education. And one day it started raining so badly outside, he asked me to come in and sit in the back quietly and watch him as he was rehearsing the other students. And I studied him very closely. And I said to him, I said, one day, sir, I'm gonna be as good as you, one day. I'm gonna be as good as you. He was my hero. And that's when I got the bug. <laughs> He was powerful. I, I spoke at his funeral. We called him the great communicator. Mm. You know, you brought something up there that I, I should have brought up earlier when I was telling, telling you about listening to your tapes and listening to you over and over again. One of the reasons why I connected so much to you is that I also grew up in the special education program and, and they didn't use the same terms when I, when I was younger, but I was considered dyslexic and you know, learning disabled in school was such a struggle for me. And I remember hearing you talking about that for the first time, first time I heard that. And I said, wow, you know what? I, I can do something. 
I can do something. I, that doesn't have to mean anything about me. And to me, that, that just made all the difference in the world, seeing someone who was doing something that I wanted to do. And, you know, I look back and at that time, I had an ability to communicate probably at a much higher level than, than most of the kids in the school because that was natural to me. But yet I had a hard time reading, I had a hard time writing, I had a hard time doing all of that. And um, when I first heard you share that story, I felt like, okay, well, if he can do it with that background, then I can too. All right. Wow. That is wonderful to hear that. Thank you. Yes. Um, well, I, I'd like to, before we, we're, we'll, we have a couple more questions and I want to answer some questions from the people here, but tell us about your new book. Cause I'm really excited about it. I have a copy that's on its way right now. So I want to hear yeah. all about it. You've got to be hungry. <laughs> this is, this book, it took me a long time to get it out and I realized it was written for this time. You've got to be hungry, the greatness within to win. And, and what it's, it's designed to do, if, if you want to make it now, the, it's a different world, it's a different landscape. We're in the era of what the late Peter Drucker calls the era of the three C's, accelerated change, overwhelming complexity, and tremendous competition. And the people that are going to break through, the people that are going to live their dreams rather than their fears, they've got to be hungry. They are determined. They're unstoppable. They are relentless. They're always looking for ways to win. They're always looking for ways to elevate their lives, to elevate their accomplishment. They, they, uh, they believe in legacy building. They're working on building a legacy and, and to live a life that will outlive them. And they're relentless. They'll come back again and again and again. And so this book, if, if a person procrastinated a lot, they're going to get over that. If they don't have confidence in themselves, they will know what they can do when they read this. If, if they've gotten stuck, they will be on fire <laughs> when they read this. If you notice, um, Homery had got bite marks on it. You know, I, yeah. if I were to have some bite marks on the book. <laughs> and so my daughter said, they're not going to know your teeth box, Dad. All right? That's a bit much. Hello? <laughs> so is, is the best place to get it on Amazon or is it somewhere else? Is that they can go to IamHungry.com. IamHungryLessBrown.com. IamHungryLessBrown.com. I'm going to pop that in the comments right now. Yes. So everyone... Let's see. You know, this morning preparing for this, I was listening to you talking about being hungry and yeah. you were telling a story about uh, wanting peanut M&Ms and uh, sweet potato pie from your mom. So yeah. it, hungry. I like it. It made me hungry in, in multiple ways. <laughs> so everyone, I just popped that link in the comments below. Everyone who's watching now, if you've got value out of this if you've got value out of the group, if you've got value out of anything that Les has done, I'm asking you just go buy a copy right now. I already got my copy on the way. Go and buy a copy right now. I want Les to know how much we in the Speakers, Authors, and Coaches Network truly appreciate him taking this time. So go get your copy today. As soon as you get off this call, go. And in fact, you could do it right now while you're still listening. Get this book. I know that you're going to love it. Absolutely go and do it.
Thank you so much. It's very kind of you. Yeah, well, you are welcome. A um, couple last questions. You know, like I said at the beginning, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on right now. And if you were to speak on national TV tonight, if, if you had a spot on national TV tonight, what is the message that you would have to share for our country and for our world? I have been dealing with that all day long, that question. What would I say now? And what I will say is that what happens in the community is created by the community. And it can be changed by the community. And the secret into creating the transformation is not to give up in spite of all the frustrations, in spite of all the disappointments, in spite of all the setbacks, is to stand our ground in terms of knowing that this has not come to stay, it has come to pass, and that we will get through this and create a brighter tomorrow, but not to become frustrated and collectively decide to go crazy. And I understand that feeling when everything you've done in, in spite of the, the things that have been holding you back and cooperating. I, I read something today that if I was younger, I would have been angry, but I didn't get angry today because I'm an older guy. And so a, a mayor out of Mississippi said, he saw nothing wrong with the killing. He said, he saw it several times, the knee on, the, on the, this black guy's neck and he died. He said, he was saying, that he, he said, I can't breathe. He said, if you can't breathe, he said, you can't talk. He said, so he didn't die from an, a, a knee and the weight of the guy, the policeman on his neck. He died from an overdose of drugs or he had a heart attack. And I just said, whoa. Now, when you don't recognize people's humanity, who's paint job is different than yours, you can come to that kind of conclusion. Had that policeman had on just plain clothes and not a policeman's suit, he would be in jail. He would not have been able to go home. He would not have 50 police officers surrounding his house right now to protect him. And so, the, so we, we know that over 97% of police officers who kill unarmed African-American males never come to court, never have any charges filed against them. And of those who do have charges filed against them, less than 3% are ever convicted and, and, and go to jail. And so when you know that the system does not work for you and you feel powerless, you feel terrorized, you feel frightened. I have five sons, you know, I'm afraid for my sons. But also, you're not safe in your own home. I mean, there, there was a, the police went into this young lady's house, they, they did a raid, and they selected the wrong house, and they shot her in bed eight times eight times they're in the wrong house and the guy that they were looking for was already incarcerated he's already in jail 
So there's no report where the guys who did that, that they had any charges filed against them. Arthur McDuffie, I went to school with him, and it, it was, and, and six police officers beat him to death. And what they said was that he had a motorcycle accident. And when the autopsy was done, his skull was cracked from them beating him with the, the, the nightsticks. And so the, the coroner said, no, 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 this man was beaten to, de beaten to death. So what they did was they were charged, but Janet Reno said to the jury, and this is where you, you can't win in the system, that the only way we can charge these six people with killing him is you have to determine which one of them struck the deadly blow. There were no videos, and even if they had videos, who could tell? And so those six guys went free. But if six black guys had beaten a white cop to death, they would not have walked free on the same thing. So we know justice is not blind. And, and so that, that erupted into the Liberty City riots. Oz McDuffie was a very nice kid. Um, he was one year behind me. And, and to, he, he died a horrible death. And so policemen know they don't have to pay any consequences. Abs they have absolute power to be judge, jury, and executioner. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And what we have to do is not become frustrated, not to be driven by anger. When things go wrong, don't go with them. Anger is the wind that blows out the lamp of the mind. Be committed to the process. But some way, somehow, we're going to get to a place in our culture where people will not be judged by their skin, but by their character, by their behavior. That's a time that's coming. Unfortunately, what's disheartening for me at 75, I was fired 45 years ago for editorializing against police brutality. A Vietnam veteran was beaten while he was holding his six-month-old baby. And I did an editorial on that. And so they fired the two police officers. And then they got me off the air. They fired me. And then they hired, had the safety director to bring them back quietly. But I lost my job for bringing attention to this man went and served our country. And you're going to beat him? There's a dispute about a bill. And he gets clubbed and beaten down by five cops while holding his baby, trying to protect his baby. This is not who we are as a country. And so the, it's, it's, I'm, I'm shocked with the level of hatred. I remember when I was with my mother on Miami Beach and they had these signs that said, Jews, dogs, and coloreds not allowed. And I asked my mother, I said, Mama, why do they hate us so much? Because there are places on Miami Beach where dogs can go that we could not go. You know, we would be arrested. And she said, I don't know, Leslie, but don't you ever be like them. Don't you ever be like them. Do you hear me? 
I said, yes, ma'am. No, she said, love people. But don't ever be like that. You do right by people, regardless. God is still in charge. And that really, I admired that sense of her. She never, ever talked about having to clap her hands. I was infuriated, but she wasn't. She never talked about a time that I was downtown 95 degrees in, in Miami and I let her hands go and I ran up, I was five years old, and started drinking from a water fountain. And all of a sudden she grabbed me by the neck and said, don't you ever do that again. And she started beating me and punching me in my head and my face, my mouth. And I was screaming, mama, it's me. She had this crazed look in her eyes. And then at that moment, a white policeman came by and he was standing over watching. He started hitting his nightstick in his hand. And he said, okay, you can stop beating that little nigger boy now. I won't have to beat him. And he walked away laughing. <laughs> and he looked back and he laughed like, you know, I bet you won't do that anymore. And, and my mother, then she picked me up. My mouth was bleeding, my eye was swollen. And I said, mama, why'd you beat me like that? She said, Leslie, I'm so sorry. But when I saw that white policeman walking towards you, his face was red and he had his nightstick and he was gonna hit you. I had to think quickly. And I, I did the best thing I could to distract him from beating you. Because had he hit you with that nightstick, he would have had to kill me. You hear me? He'd had to kill me and I'd left you and your brothers and sisters to fend for yourselves. I'm all you got. And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm all right, mama. It didn't hurt that badly. Yes, it did. No, mama, it's okay, fine. And my eyes swollen, my lips bleeding. But at five, you know, I'm just thinking, wow, this man had a gun, he had a nightstick. I just drank from a water fountain. She said, that water fountain is for whites only. We can only drink from the ones over there as for colors. I said, okay, all right, mama. So she said, don't you ever do that again? I said, I won't. I promise you I won't. And so at night, man, when I got home, I just, I started looking at the world differently. I became an old man. They, the neighbors would keep my brothers and sisters, but they wouldn't keep me. They said, Mamie, you have to take Leslie with you because he's a little touched in the head. <laughs> you know, we can't, we can't be responsible for him. <laughs> What's wrong with him? And so, but it, it caused me to look at life differently. But most importantly, I'm Mamie Brown's son. I said, regardless of what I'm dealing with, I'm going to find a way to win, to take care of her. That was the most important thing. In that kind of environment where you're the last hired and the first fired, I'm going to find a way to take care of my mother. I'm old school that when I came up, you know, women didn't pay bills. Men, not a grown boy, a man pays the bills. If a woman wants to work and 
earn money, then she used that to pamper herself. But a woman is not supposed to pay bills. My mother said, if your wife has a job and a husband too, one of them's got to go. <laughs> I said, yes, ma'am, mama. I said, okay. I said, my wife will never have to work. <laughs> so, so, so when I turned 18, she never had to pay another bill. That, that was a driving principle in my life and how the influence that she she had on me she was quite a lady quite an incredible person i talk about a lot and and it's uh her her courage and how she handled things and as i look at things today i'm an optimist this has not come to stay that is this has come to pass i have a guy who he drove 80 miles to come hear me every week in Chicago. And he was a quadriplegic. He used to be a skinhead. And he fell out of a tree and he was paralyzed and became a paraplegic. And he had a, a, a bumper sticker. I mean, his, his license plate had SOS and it stands for the same old Yes, okay. And his mother said, my son was trying to find a way to take his life. He was deeply depressed because he became a paraplegic. And someone told him to turn on television. He saw me on public television. And she said, and I saw his eyes light up when you talked about how you became a disc jockey. And he heard you were in Chicago. And he decided he wanted to come to see you. And he came and I was doing a youth training and he drove every day for two weeks, 80 miles one way to come see me. And he, it changed his life. He, he changed his, 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 his license plate to life is beautiful. And he, he is, he's a motivational speaker now. He's a wonderful person. He was just a kid, but he's a grown man now. I'm 75. My goodness, man. I'm old as dirt. <laughs> I served at the Lord's Supper. <laughs> and so he called me. I said, you got gray hair? He said, I have no hair. He said, you must have a Corona Afro. I said, I do. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So to 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 be still be here to be a blessing and to to make a difference, to live a life. I think all of us are here to live a life that will outlive us. That's the mandate for us. It's it's a wonderful thing. As Louis Armstrong said, what a wonderful world. Absolutely. One of my favorite songs ever. And and I, I want to end this. One last question, but I, I, I first want to say thank you so much for your Yeah, but I want us to share the stage together, not virtually. I want us to go head to head. <laughs> Done. Deal. All you right. Where, I'll be there. Uh, right. I want to say thank you so much for your optimism. And, you know, I, I have this behind me to remind me every day to focus on the good. And to me, you epitomize that. That's something that, you. that you have always epitomized. My last question for you is, we have a lot of people in our community that, that feel like they have a story to share. 
they want to go out and make a difference. They want to go out and, and not just make a difference, but make a living making a difference. And what is your advice for someone just starting out who says, I have a, a story that I want to share and I want to go out and I want to share that message? We have a, we have a three-step process that we will do because now everything is virtual and it's going to be this way for a very long time. Number one, we work on the messenger. We have materials for them to listen to to work on their mindset. Who you are behind the words are far more important than the words that you speak. Number two, we go from the messenger to the message. We help them to extract the message and teach and share with them how to deliver that message. And three, we teach them how to monetize the message, how to, how to earn money from home virtually. It's a, it's a speaker's dream. I will never get on an airplane again. And even though when I speak out of the country, I earn $225,000 an hour, but I'm not interested in, in flying anymore. I have 15 grandchildren, they call me Papa. They think I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. Hello, hello, hello. I'm only second to Mickey Mouse, okay? <laughs> and so, so now people have the chance and opportunity to train in different cities, three to four different cities a day in front of the computer, do it virtually and transform people's lives. So we teach them how to tell their story, how to train and how to create and orchestrate an experience. So we work on first the mindset, because you don't get in life what you want, you get in life what you are. Secondly, we work on the message. We give a message out of our mess. And thirdly, how to monetize that. In 2007, Time Magazine said the computer was the person of the year. Why? Because for the first time in the history of the world, everyday people had access to information and e-commerce. And so now you can run a global business from your computer. That's exciting. That is very exciting. That is and absolutely. If they have an interest, they can just, just email me at lesbrown77 at gmail.com and, and, and put in there, focus on the good. <laughs> and I'll know that they listen to this show. They have to do it right away. And, and we will do something very special for them. Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, absolutely. Everyone do that. So you said Les Brown 777? At, at, no, two sevens. Two seven seven, seven at gmail.com. All right. Les Brown 77 at gmail.com. Uh, Les, thank you so much. Uh, this has been an absolute privilege and honor. Everyone watching live, thank you so much. Those watching the replay, uh, post a comment below of the number one takeaway from hearing from Les Brown today. Les, I just want to tell you, you have inspired millions around the world. And to me, you've inspired the most important person in my life, this guy right here. So <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you, I just feel a special love and connection with you. I can't wait for us to meet. I don't want no virtual hug. I want the real deal up <laughs> in here, up in here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. We're going to be signing off. Less if you can stay for just one more minute, but we are signing off Facebook Live. See you guys later. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope that you got something great out of it. I hope that you enjoyed it. And most importantly, I hope that you found something that you can apply. Success is not given to just the talented or the lucky. Success is given to those who are willing to take action. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with somebody else who would enjoy it. 
And if you would like all five parts of the Number One Goal five-part fundamental video series, head over to yournumberonegoal.com. That's all spelled out, yournumberonegoal.com. Thanks so much for listening. This is Jake Ballantyne with Mountaintop Motivation, and I will see you at the top.